This is not going to be a pleasant experience. You are going to see and hear things that are not going to be very nice. Experts divide serial killing into two general types: organized and disorganized. An organized killer brings everything he needs to complete the murder. A disorganized killer improvises. Begin. Listener discretion is advised. 39-year-old Susan Dahl, who lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, was selling her house. On August 29th, the real estate agent let herself into Dahl's house and found something odd in the hallway. It appeared that someone had urinated and defecated in the hallway. In the upstairs bedroom, the real estate agent found the nude, dead body of 39-year-old Susan Dahl. The real estate agent immediately called the police. Dahl had a cut phone line wrapped around her neck. It was later determined that she had been strangled to death. She had also been raped. The police looked around the house and they found more bodily fluid. On the second floor, they found semen in three separate areas. If you listen to the first episode of Into the Killing you'll know that DNA testing was only used to identify a murderer two years earlier in 1987 in England. DNA technology was not yet a major crime-fighting tool in the United States. So the killer may not have known that his bodily fluids could be used to identify him. Or he simply didn't care. The police figured out how the killer got into the house. The killer climbed up on a fence and then on to part of the roof. Then he entered through a second floor window. On the windowsill, he left seven fingerprints. The police ran the fingerprints, but they didn't find a match. Based on some elements of the crime scene, the investigators speculated that the killer was probably a young man. The first reason they thought this is the way he entered the house. Older men don't generally climb fences to get onto roofs to break into a house. That's usually the way a kid breaks into a house. Also, the crime lacked the sophistication of an older sex criminal. An older, experienced predator probably would have cleaned up and possibly used a condom. They would not have left so much evidence behind. Nothing was stolen from the house except for her underwear. The investigators searched the records, and just ten days before the murder, someone broke into Susan Dahl's house. Twenty-five pairs of Dahl's underwear were taken. The thief also ejaculated on a towel. Because of the sexual elements of the break-in, the police thought that the same person who stole the underwear ten days earlier also killed Dahl. 
On the night of the first break-in, several people saw a young man with shoulder-length blonde hair on a BMX bike hanging out in front of her home. A sketch was created and released to the public. Tips came in, but it did not lead to any arrests. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. The police had no idea who would want to kill Susan Dahl. They interviewed men she had dated, business associates, and other people who knew Dahl. They were able to eliminate them all as suspects. Over the next three months, there were more break-ins in Fort Collins, where the only items that were stolen were women's underwear. Luckily, no one else was killed. But... No arrests were made either. It wasn't long before Susan Dahl's murder was considered cold. Then, in July 1995, six years after the murder, the lead investigator was called to a house less than a mile from Susan Dahl's home. A repairman was inspecting the furnace, and he found something odd. It was a ball of women's underwear. It turned out to be 13 pairs of underwear. The underwear was examined and semen was found on some of the pairs. It was compared to the semen that was found at the scene of the murder and it was a match. The lead investigator then checked to see if there were any criminal records that were connected to the house where the underwear was found. It turned out that three young men who had listed the house as their residence had been arrested for shoplifting. They were a pair of brothers, Keith and Douglas Thames, and Paul Trujillo. At the time of the murders, they would have been between the ages of 15 and 16. What caught the attention of the lead investigator on the case was that one hobby the boys had was riding BMX bikes. The detective tracked down the three young men who were now in their early 20s. They were living in Grand Junction, Colorado. The detective collected samples of their hair, pubic hair, and blood, along with their fingerprints. On July 31, 1995, an expert confirmed that one of the young man's fingerprints matched the fingerprints found at the crime scene. They were the fingerprints of Douglas Thames. 
Douglas was 16 years old at the time of the murder. He was arrested at his roofing job on August 4, 1995. He denied committing the murder. Not long after he denied killing Susan Dahl, the results of the DNA test came back. It was Douglas's semen found at the crime scene and on the underwear found in the furnace. Douglas was charged with the first-degree murder of Susan Dahl. Douglas Thames went to trial in the spring of 1996, nearly seven years after the murder. The prosecution felt like they had a strong case. Douglas's semen and fingerprints were all over the crime scene. But Douglas had an interesting alibi. He claimed he was out of town in Wyoming on a family vacation at the time of the murder. He even had proof his grandmother had photographs of the vacation. His grandmother's photo albums were submitted into evidence. The prosecution looked at the photographs and saw dates written on the back of some of the photos. The dates seemed to indicate that Douglas truly was out of the state where the murder was committed. The photo albums were a problem for the prosecution because if there was any reasonable doubt, the jury could acquit Douglas. As the prosecutors were examining the photos, they noticed something odd. Full dates for the day, month, and year were only written on the photographs that exonerated Douglas. Also, the other photos appeared to be out of order. For example, they had photos from Thanksgiving 1989. A relative was clean-cut in one of the photos, but a few photos later, supposedly at the same event, the same relative has a thick mustache. On May 6, 1996, Douglas Thames was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was given a life sentence with the chance of parole. Douglas is currently serving his sentence at the Buena Vista Correctional Complex in Buena Vista, Colorado. The second tragic case we're going to talk about happened in June 1994, five years after Susan Dahl's murder. Like Dahl's murder, this one happened in Colorado. But this murder was committed in Palisade, which is about 340 miles from Fort Collins. June 4th, 1994 was a Saturday. If you turned on a pop radio station or MTV, you'd probably hear the sign by Ace of Base, I Swear by All for One, and The Power of Love by Celine Dion. That weekend, the live-action movie The Flintstones was enjoying its second weekend at the top of the box office. 19-year-old J.C. Taylor lived with a roommate, Brandy Bledsoe, in an apartment. That weekend, Bledsoe was out of town. Around 8.30 on the morning of June 4th, Taylor's downstairs neighbor saw water coming into his apartment through the ceiling. He went up to the apartment and he was able to get inside. In the bathtub, he found the dead body of 19-year-old J.C. Taylor. He called the police. Taylor was nude from the waist down. She had been beaten and then strangled to death with a dog leash, which was still wrapped around her neck. It was also determined that she had been raped. The police found blood in the bathroom sink and other places throughout the living room. The police interviewed Taylor's roommate, Brandy Bledsoe. 
She told them that their friend, Cynthia Mallow, had recently provided her and Taylor with methamphetamine. Mallow got the meth from her friend, 33-year-old Robert Dewey. A few days before the murder, Dewey came over to the apartment where Taylor and Bledsoe lived. Bledsoe said that Dewey looked nervous and he appeared to be casing the apartment. The police tracked down Dewey and twice he lied about his identity. So the police were immediately suspicious of him. During the initial interview with Dewey, the police noted that there was a large gray sock on his right forearm. He initially said that he was helping his friend with his car and the battery exploded, injuring his arm. He later said that he was wearing the sock to cover the scars that he got from abusing meth. Dewey admitted that he was inside J.C. Taylor's apartment on June 3rd, the day before her body was found. He said he had shaved off his beard in the apartment. After Dewey was interviewed by the police, he and his wife fled town. One of Dewey's friends talked to the police. He told the police that Dewey gave him the handgun and asked him to hold on to it. It turned out that the handgun had been stolen. On June 22, 1994, Dewey was arrested in Pueblo, Colorado for the stolen gun. Dewey told the police that he had lied about his identity, shaved his beard, and left town because he was worried about getting in trouble for the stolen gun. After Dewey was arrested, another one of his friends went to the police. She said that Dewey had told her that he was at Taylor's apartment with at least four other people. They were partying and doing meth. The woman said that Dewey admitted to being at the apartment when Taylor was killed, but he said he didn't kill her. But then, months later, the woman changed her story. She claimed she was drunk when she talked to the police and said that Dewey never told her any of that stuff. In November 1994, Robert Dewey agreed to a plea deal regarding the stolen gun. Because of the plea deal, he was sentenced to a year in prison. The police were still suspicious of Dewey and they continued to build a case against him. They found a shirt that Dewey owned that had blood on it. It was examined, and experts said that the blood was a mix of Dewey's blood and J.C. Taylor's blood. In April, here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. 
Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. In 1995, less than a year after the murder, Robert Dewey was charged with Taylor's murder. Robert Dewey's trial started in September 1996. Dewey said that he was at home when the murder was committed. At the time of the murder, Dewey and his wife were living with a friend, and that friend testified. They said that Dewey was not at home on the night of the murder. Another witness testified, and he said that he gave Dewey a ride on the morning of Saturday, June 4th, when Taylor's body was found. The man said that Dewey pointed out the apartment building and said that a woman in the building had been strangled with a dog chain. This was way too early for someone who wasn't involved in the crime to know specific details. Dewey argued that he got a ride from his friend on Sunday morning, which was the day after the body was found. Then came the DNA evidence. An expert for the prosecution testified about the blood on the shirt. She said that the blood could have come from Dewey and Taylor but she also testified that 45% of Caucasian people could have contributed to the DNA. The defense had their own DNA expert testify. Both DNA experts agreed that the DNA found under Taylor's fingerprints did not belong to Dewey, nor did any of the blood found in Taylor's apartment. The prosecution had an explanation for this. They said that Dewey had an unidentified partner who helped him commit the murder. The trial lasted for a month and the jury deliberated for a day. Robert Dewey was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Robert Dewey's lawyer started filing appeals, but he ended up losing all of them. Eleven years after he was convicted, in 2007, they contacted the Innocence Project. They agreed to help Dewey, and they had the blood on the shirt tested again. It turned out that there was only one set of DNA on the shirt, and that was Dewey's DNA. Years later, the Colorado Attorney General's Office received a $1.2 million federal grant to fund the DNA Justice Review Project. In 2011, the DNA Justice Review tested the DNA found under Taylor's fingernails and around the apartment. Then the DNA was submitted to CODIS. A match to the DNA was found. The DNA belonged to a man who was in prison because he had been convicted in May 1996 for a similar rape and murder that happened in August 1989 at Fort Collins. That man's name was Douglas Thames, and he was in prison for the murder of Susan Dahl. It turned out that, at the time of J.C. Taylor's murder, Douglas lived on the same street. According to investigators, he lived just two or three buildings away. One investigator said you could have thrown a baseball from his building to Taylor's building. J.C. Taylor was killed about a year before Douglas was arrested for Susan Dahl's murder. Robert Dewey was arrested for Taylor's murder about four months before Douglas was arrested for killing Dahl. In 
Douglas Thames had never been a suspect or a person of interest in J.C. Taylor's murder. J.C. Taylor was friends with Douglas's girlfriend and they socialized together. After Douglas's DNA was linked to the crime scene, he was interviewed. He said he didn't know why his DNA was at the crime scene. He also denied knowing Taylor. However, several eyewitnesses had already told the police that they knew each other. Douglas admitted that he owned a dog at the time of the murder, but claimed he never took it for walks and that he didn't even own a leash. Of course, no one believed him. On April 30th, 2012, Robert Dewey's conviction was vacated and he was released from prison. He had spent 16 years in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. That same day, Douglas Thames was charged with J.C. Taylor's murder. In September 2013, Robert Dewey was awarded $1.2 million in compensation for the 16 years he wrongly spent in prison. Douglas Thames went to trial for Taylor's murder in November 2015, 21 years after the murder. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. Barring some type of change in the law or a sentence being commuted, Douglas Thames will most likely die in prison. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.